0: And thanks for listening. How are climate and energy issues playing with voters and non-voters in the upcoming elections? Welcome to Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. Climate One conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded at the Commonwealth Club of California and hosted by Greg Dalton. I'm Devin Strolovich. Climate-conscious voters don't have a great track record at the ballot box. When we poll environmentalists who we know aren't voting, the overwhelming majority of them lie their pants off. Nathaniel Stinnett founded the Environmental Voter Project in 2015. EVP's mission is to increase demand for progressive environmental policy by turning inactive environmentalists
2: into active voters. Stinnett will
0: tell Greg how the group works to get out the climate
2: vote regardless of where you live, what your political views might be. You know, this is really about helping everyone participate in our democracy.
0: Sam Ahrens is Director of Sustainability at the ride-hail company Lyft, which is part of a coalition of companies, including Patagonia and Levi's, that are encouraging their employees and customers to vote this year. We'll hear how that civic engagement effort aligns with their own corporate sustainability work. But first, Greg talks to New York Times reporter Trip Gabriel, to find out how the recent fires, floods, and hurricanes
1: have, or haven't, been playing on the campaign trail. Tripp Gabriel, welcome to Climate One. Glad to be with you. So as we approach the midterms with me, uh, two, lots of hot-button social issues, how is energy and climate and the environment playing this election cycle?
3: Well, climate change, as an issue so described, is hardly playing at all. That just is a head-scratcher to someone like me, uh, who's you know following the news or anyone else who might be following the news you know it's it's been a year of uh, record wildfires in on the west coast in california it's been a season of century or 500 year floods in the uh, in the southeast and of course there've been the uh, widespread attacks on climate policy and uh, energy policy by uh, the administration, but it is an issue that uh, is not much uh, talked about, uh, certainly in federal races uh, for Congress. Uh, You hear it more at the uh, state level in um, maybe not surprisingly some of the Western states where energy is much more um, on voters' minds.
1: Right, there's a carbon tax on the ballot in Washington, a gas tax repeal in California, a fracking initiative in Colorado, uh, clean energy proposals in Arizona and Nevada. Yeah, you know, all Western states. Uh, it's but it's not really playing along the East Coast or even some of the extraction states in the East. There are sort of local issues. Uh, interestingly, Florida uh, algae, uh, sort of
3: toxic algae spread, is a become a big issue in the uh, the gubernatorial races down there. But climate change, you know, which you know, particularly in the wake of the IPCC uh, report, noting very dire consequences, uh, you know, speeding up more than scientists had previously uh, expected, uh, it's very hard to find a, a race for a, a house seat or or United States Senate seat in which uh, this is a front and center issue, and, and and perhaps that's not surprising in the sense that, you know, the big question here is whether Democrats will uh, take a majority in the House of Representatives and. The districts that uh, are in play, uh, mostly Republican-held, are by definition swing or battleground districts. And climate is an issue that has become uh, enormously polarized along um, partisan lines in a way that it it didn't used to be as as recently as a decade ago. So it's it's a fraught issue for Democrats to raise... um, It could be easy to, you know, use it against those candidates by sort of motivating uh, conservative voters to uh, come out against them.
1: You wrote about Dan McCready, a boyish ex-Marine who's also a solar energy entrepreneur. Tell us about his race and how he's talking about issues in his district.
3: McCready is running for a Republican-held uh, seat in southern North Carolina. It's a district that's kind of east of uh, Charlotte. And this is uh, one of these seats that Democrats nationally uh, feel they can flip. It's been in Republican hands for decades. Um, it's an open seat. There's not an uh, incumbent uh, running. Uh, and McCready is, is one of those candidates that has the right profile for this kind of seat. He's an ex-Marine. He is, uh, he's a businessman in the solar energy field. He started an investment company to invest in solar power, Um, but he doesn't talk a lot about uh, climate change. Uh, On his website, there are 13 top issues that he lists, and and none of them are climate change. Um, His most recent ad, or one of his most recent ads, uh, extols his record investing in solar power, but doesn't really talk about it as an environmental issue. It talks about it as a jobs issue. And it talks about his business experience as something he would take to Congress. So that is a very careful kind of walking around, uh, you know, the main, the main issue here, which is climate. And uh, I was down in this district shortly after Hurricane Florence devastated that part of the state. And you would think that that would be a, a pretty uh, f- uh, top of mind front and center issue, but it is not.
1: Yeah, well, scientists tell us that those extreme events have a strong but short-lived impact. Those things tend to fade. It's also uh, you write about Lumberton, one of the poorest counties in the state. Uh, we know that climate change is going to affect poor people who are least equipped to deal with it, to respond to it. To, to it. so, is that connecting at all? Issue, you know, climate and poverty, or is it just too far away?
3: Well, um, Lumberton is actually the name of the city, and uh, it's in it's mm-hmm. in, in the poorest or one of the poorest counties in uh, North Carolina. And and, and you're right, um, the, the Lumber River um, flooded in Hurricane uh, Florence, who's uh, just dropped you know 24 to 36 inches of rain, just devastating rain. Less than two years after the the, the previous hurricane had also done a lot of damage there. And, you know, the most vulnerable areas in a, in, a, in a place like that are right along the river. And there was not a great levee system around this city. And, and these are where poor people tend to live. And so they've been hit twice back to back. In my interviews with the folks whose, you know, homes were damaged and a lot of them driven out, uh, it was not the kind of issue that is really front and center for them, um, even after two heavy hurricanes
1: be interesting to see what happens after Hurricane Michael ripping through the the Florida panhandle, where there's a couple of uh, moderate Republicans down there, Carlos Corbello the, representing the southern tip of Florida, uh, Francis Rooney in Florida, also Brian Fitzpatrick. Are there moderate Republicans that are touching this issue as, as they affect uh, their mm. districts?
3: Well, you you named two of them. Um, Corbello's <clears throat> district's actually in the uh, southernmost tip of Florida Keys. And he's probably the most aggressive Republican in either the House or the Senate in Washington right now on this issue. He introduced a uh, a bill to tax carbon, which is an anathema really to uh, most mainstream Republicans these days. And uh, you mentioned Brian Fitzpatrick, who represents a Pennsylvania district. And I, I believe he's one of the co-sponsors of that bill, uh, Bucks County uh, district outside in the in the suburbs of Philadelphia. And he's in a tough race, um, you know, with a lot of well-educated voters who are the swing voters in these Republican-held seats. And he's also, um, I mean, it's actually a race between two candidates, Democrat and Republican, who uh, are both, you know, talking a little bit about uh, climate change and and, want to see some action on it. So there are, you know, a a smattering of Republicans, uh, at least in the federal races. You know, ironically, um, in this uh, very polarized uh, election climate, the folks that are likely to be defeated are the more moderate uh, Republicans. So we could see a house without any of the Republican congressmen who are willing to address uh, climate as an issue.
1: And as we're talking about the midterm elections earlier in this cycle, uh, Don Blankenship uh, was CEO of a coal company when the upper big branch coal mine killed 29 people in 2010. He campaigned as a victim for the U.S. Senate. Tell us that story. Um,
3: The worst coal mine disaster in recent times was in 2010 in West Virginia. And as you mentioned, there were 29 miners who were killed. It's a mine owned by a company run by uh, Don Blankenship, who was a legendary, still is, I suppose, figure in in West Virginia. And he was sent to federal prison for a year in a trial connected with his uh, um, connection to that disaster. He he got out and... um, Promptly announced that he was going to run for uh, United States Senate from West Virginia and try to defeat Joe Manchin, who's the the senator up for re-election this year. Don Blankenship, who <laughs> I, I didn't think anyone would take seriously, but I did go down and write a story about it, you know, early in the spring, and um, he found a fair amount of traction in the Republican primary. Uh, you know, he. He, he claimed to be a victim of the federal government. He called himself a, a political prisoner. He said he'd been unfairly prosecuted by the Obama Justice Department. He he had a very you – know, he put on a very – I think a $10 million uh, defense trial uh, in his case um, before he was convicted. And he continues to maintain that he was a victim and – there was a fair amount of support, uh, a surprising amount of support for uh, Blankenship in the Republican primary in uh, coal country, the southern part of uh, West Virginia. And it, it wasn't so much that, um, you know, rank and file folks felt that Don had been uh, persecuted, you know, for his role in this mine disaster. But they felt that, uh, you know, he he was someone that once represented... Uh, the the height of the uh the coal uh, industry in West Virginia and, and what I heard a lot was when Don Blankenship was running uh, Massey Energy uh, we all had jobs and so there has been you know, a great uh, loss of jobs in uh, southern West Virginia in coal mines, mostly because of the cheaper natural gas. So many um, power plants uh, in the central part of the country uh, have uh, converted from coal to natural gas. And and so the demand is much lower for uh, coal. That's not what people see, because it's not what they hear. I mean, what they hear is that the EPA and the federal government have uh, regulated coal out of the marketplace. And and so that's why they lost their jobs. And that's, of course, a message that uh, Donald Trump also repeated. When he uh, when he campaigned in that part of the country.
1: So what are you going to be looking at as key indicators for which way the, the House is going to go in uh, in November of eighteen?
3: Well, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of um, House seats that are uh, you know that the Democrats at least think are in play, and and a lot of Republicans do too. I mean, you know, the the Democrats need to win. I guess it's twenty three seats to 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 win a, a yeah. majority, and and early on they thought. They looked around the country, and they realized, hey, there are 23 House districts that Hillary Clinton won, and we'll win those ones, and and that'll be done. Um, It's it's a lot more complicated than that, uh, but... There are kind of various categories of, of seats that are more or less vulnerable, that are Republican-held. And there are many open seats, and those are the, going to be the easiest ones to flip. They tend to be in suburban areas, uh, northern Virginia, the Philadelphia suburbs. Um, also, uh, throughout Southern California and Orange County, there's four or five seats down there that, uh, you know, it's a traditionally very conservative part of the country, but uh, the number of Republicans uh, retired, Darrell Issa being one, um, th- those are pickup opportunities. And that's an interesting race too, uh, just in terms of the uh, climate issue. I mean, uh, Daryl Issa—it's the uh, 49th district of California—and the Democrat nominee Mike uh, Levin um, launched his campaign by going to a Daryl Issa town hall and, uh, you know, and, and trying to impress, give give him a book about climate climate change for dummies. He's an environmental lawyer. He's one of the very outspoken um, uh, Democrats on this issue, uh, sort of breaking the rule that we were talking about earlier some of the some of the seats that democrats you know are are hopeful of uh, picking up have, have become a lot harder and a lot of them are in uh, texas and california and have a high proportion of latino voters who democrats think they're going to win or would like to win but uh, are having a much harder time convincing i mean I can't uh, predict uh, what's going to happen. I don't think anybody can. I, you know, some of the best folks I've talked to have said, you know, whichever uh, party comes out the majority party in the House, you know, will have a very slim majority of just a handful of seats. And of course, the Senate is a, a very difficult picture for Democrats uh, just because they're defending so many seats in red states.
1: Trip Gabriel from the New York Times. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. It's a lot of fun. Thank you.
0: You're listening to a Climate One election special. Coming up, Greg Dalton talks to the founder of the Environmental Voter Project about getting out the climate vote. We talked to them
4: before library trustee races and city council races and elections for dog catcher. Any election is an opportunity to turn a non-voter into a voter.
0: That's up next, when Climate One continues. We continue now with Climate One's election special. Nathaniel Stanett is executive director of the Environmental Voter Project, which he founded in 2015, after more than a decade as a senior advisor, consultant, and trainer for political campaigns and nonprofit advocacy groups. The EVP has discovered a shocking number of Americans, more than 10 million, who cite environmental protection as a core value, but who don't vote regularly. Let's listen as Stanett tells host Greg Dalton how the group works to turn those non
1: voters into voters. Nathaniel Stinnett, welcome to Climate One. Thank you, Greg. Thank you for having me. Why are environmentalists such awful voters?
4: Gosh, you you ask the right question. And uh, the honest answer is, we don't know. We've tried to research this, and no matter how we ask the question, we always get back a really interesting and frustrating response, and that is, when we poll environmentalists who we know aren't voting, the overwhelming majority of them, Greg, lie their pants off and swear (laughs) up and down that they vote all the time. And we know they're lying because whether you vote or not is public record. And so the really interesting thing is we actually don't know why environmentalists aren't voting. We know the excuses that they give but it's hard to believe them because we know that people over-report how often they vote.
1: That raises an interesting point about, yeah, how um, people don't tell the truth to pollsters. How, def- how do you find and define these environmentalists? We
4: at the Environmental Voter Project, because we're a voter mobilization organization, don't just want to mobilize casual environmentalists. We want to target and then mobilize people who care so deeply about climate and the environment that they list it as their number one priority or their number two priority over all others. So that's how we define environmentalists. And then as far as how we find them, we conduct enormous polls. We'll poll something close to 10,000 people per state. And all we'll ask them is we'll say, What's your number one most important political priority? And what's your number two most important political priority? And then we'll isolate the people who deeply care about climate and the environment. And then our data scientists will look for a lot of hidden patterns and correlations that reveal who those people are. And we'll use that information to build these models that help us identify every environmentalist in a state. And I know it sounds like a very complicated and convoluted process, but this approach is actually how every sophisticated political campaign is now targeting voters.
1: Well, when they don't tell the truth about how often they vote, how do you know that they're telling you the truth that the environment uh, is a top one or two issue? They may be just telling you what they think you want to hear. How do you know they're telling you the truth in this case? That's a great question. That's a great question. So the first thing that we do is after we
4: build these models, and once we think that we've identified all these super environmentalists in a state, we then ship out our work to an outside polling company and we say, can you test our can you test the accuracy of these models and call these people up and ask them off the top of their heads what their top two political priorities are? The worst score we've ever gotten in one of those tests, the worst score, is that 88% of the respondents off the top of their head have offered climate or the environment as one of their top two priorities. However, you might ask, maybe they're lying again. (laughs) Maybe these people just feel the urge to say that they care about climate and the environment when really deep down that they don't. And that might be happening, but it actually doesn't really matter. Because the way that policy is made in this country is that politicians poll likely voters to figure out what issues they care about. They don't poll non-voters. They only poll voters. And when they find out what issues voters prioritize, that's what politicians lead on. Politicians go where the votes are. And so whether these voters are telling the truth or not, if we can just get more of these people who say that they care about the environment to vote, politicians will follow because nothing motivates a politician more than the prospect of winning or losing an election.
1: And what percentage of Americans have environment or climate as a top one or two issue?
4: We don't know how many Americans, because we actually don't measure Americans. We only measure registered voters. Uh, Of the roughly 200 million registered voters, we've found 20 million who list climate change or some other environmental issue as one of their top priorities. So that's about 10%. The problem is... Those 20 million people are not very good at voting. Only 4.2 million of them voted in the 2014 midterm elections, and only half of them, only 10 million, voted in the 2016 presidential election. So that's why at the Environmental Voter Project, we don't concentrate on trying to change people's minds. We don't try to make new environmentalists. We just try to find the people who already deeply care about this issue yet aren't voting. And we try to tweak their habits and turn them into better voters.
1: And how do you tweak their habits? You use psychology, peer pressure? What tools do you get people uh, to, to vote more frequently?
4: Well, the, the punchline is the Environmental Voter Project never talks about the environment. Mm-hmm. And there's a very good reason for that. It, it doesn't work. Talking about climate change and talking about environmental issues might be a good way to persuade people to care about those issues. But if you're already preaching to the choir and you just want to get them out the door on election day, talking about those issues doesn't work. What we've realized is that peer pressure and other forms of social pressure work the best. So I'll give you some examples. We might send someone a letter saying, Greg, Did you know last time there was an election, 93 people in your building on Main Street turned out to vote? I know that sounds juvenile, and it is, but it works. Peer pressure works. Another thing that we do is we will send people copies of their personal voting histories. And we'll Mm. say, Greg, I just wanted to remind you who you vote for is secret, but whether you vote or not is public record and here's a copy of your voting history. And some people are a little put off by that, but at the end of the day, it increases turnout dramatically because we've realized that even people who don't vote still buy into the societal norm that voting is a good thing. They
1: want to be known as good voters. You also ask them to make a public pledge and, and follow up with them after the election. Tell us about that. That's exactly right.
4: And this is something that a lot of campaigns use. And asking for a voter to pledge to vote sounds very simple, and it is, but there's a lot of sophisticated behavioral science underneath that. Unless you're a sociopath, most Americans want to be known as an honest and trustworthy person. So if I get you, Greg, to promise to vote, and then I mail back a reminder of that pledge that you made, it dramatically increases your likelihood of voting, not because you needed a reminder of when the election is, but rather because you want to keep your promises, just like most people want to keep their promises. And if our reminder says, hey, Greg, back in October, you promised that you were going to vote, well, the election's on Tuesday, and we know it's important to you to be an honest and trustworthy person, and so this is your opportunity to keep your promise. Again, it it feels like we're in middle school when you say that, and it is very juvenile, but it, it works. We're social animals, and we want to adhere to certain societal norms. And if we can take advantage of that, we can really change people's behavior
1: in pretty dramatic ways. I've had some conversations about boomers, and some people say that boomers, uh, A, created a lot of the climate problem. They're not so interested in paying to fix it because they won't see the benefits of the cost they incur. What kind of age breakdown do you see? Are younger people more concerned about climate because they know they're going to be living in a disrupted climate longer?
4: Yes, younger people are more concerned about climate change, but it's not as clear a distinction as young versus old as you might believe. A lot of the Mm -hmm. stereotypes that most people have in their heads about the typical environmentalist no longer hold true. For instance, I would suggest to you that a Latina grandmother living in Phoenix is now just as likely to care about climate change as some hipster in Portland or San Francisco or Brooklyn. We have found that Latinos and African-Americans are significantly more likely to care about climate change than Caucasians. We have found that people who make under $50,000 a year are significantly more likely to care about it than people who make more than $50,000. And yes, young people do care about this issue more than older people, but we're also seeing some interesting deviations from that. Uh, In particular, we're seeing something we call the grandmother effect. We're seeing that women, particularly in their late 50s through their early 70s, are much more likely to care about climate change than their male counterparts in that age group, but also they care more about it than people in their 30s, 40s, and 50s do. And so it's not as simple as it's just teenagers or people in their 20s who care about climate. It's a more complex and evolving constituency.
1: One thought is that people who live in cities are disconnected from the environment, uh, therefore they may not value it, want to pay to protect it, to vote on it. Do you see an urban-rural split along uh, in this environmentalism? We do
4: see an urban-rural split, but not in the way that you just suggested. We actually see people who live within five miles of an urban core tend to care more about climate change and other environmental issues. And- There are a few reasons why. The first is that just generally mirrors a conservative versus liberal trend in the United States. The more Mm -hmm. urban a population is, the more likely it is to care about typically progressive issues. But even beyond that, we're realizing that the people who are feeling the impacts of climate change most tend to be the urban poor who live on the coasts, or the urban Mm -hmm. poor who live in sort of drought-stricken areas. Uh, Yes, there is much more complexity to it than that. There are plenty of suburbanites who care about climate change. There are plenty of people who live in rural America who care about climate change. But certainly the majority of this constituency are urban Americans.
1: And how are people affected by extreme weather events? We're seeing Hurricane Michael rip through the Florida panhandle, strongest hurricane in 50 years. There's sort of a coming together at some point, and then people fade and go back to their lives. How, you know Does that affect people, and does it stick?
4: It absolutely changes opinions. Uh, extreme weather and climate change-fueled natural disasters— definitely change people's opinions about climate change. But it is not sticky. There are a lot of people who will care very deeply about the present impacts of climate change and the future impacts of climate change when they are experiencing that. But then their passion for the issue and their worry about the issue fades over time. And that's why I think we need to resist the urge to not talk about climate change and to not talk about politics when a disaster is happening. That is the best time to talk about these issues, because that is when this really big but kind of amorphous tragedy actually becomes real to people. That is the best time to talk about the politics behind climate change, because that's when people deeply care about it.
1: And where have you tested this uh, mobilization? What what track record do you have so far in certain elections? So
4: we launched three years ago at the end of 2015 in Massachusetts, and we ran a year-long proof of concept here. And then off the strength of those initial results, we then, last year in 2017, expanded into Colorado, Florida, Georgia, Nevada, and Pennsylvania. And Our results vary from year to year because obviously presidential elections are very different from municipal elections that we had last year in 2017, and this year's midterm elections will will be different yet again. But every time we have run these mobilizations, when we've been able to contact people in at least two ways, so by texting and mail or by calls and canvassing or something like that, we have been able to increase turnout. 2.8 to 4.5 percent. And I know those numbers might not sound like much to certain people, but in politics, two or three percent is everything. Remember, our goal is to change the electorate over time. And when we go into a state and we find these non voting environmentalists, We don't just talk to them before the big elections. We talk to them before library trustee races and city council races and elections for dog catcher. Any election is an opportunity to turn a non-voter into a voter. And the results we're most excited about is over the course of one year, when we're able to contact people three, four, sometimes even five times, we have increased their turnout rates as much as 12.1% which is truly extraordinary. And that's the type of sea change that we need in the electorate for the environmental movement to really start flexing our muscles.
1: So let's talk about some specific swing states, Pennsylvania, Florida, Georgia, Colorado, Nevada, uh, states where you're active. In Florida, about half a million registered environmentalists stayed home in 2016. Donald Trump won there by 100,000 votes. Uh, What are you doing in Florida?
4: So... This year in Florida, we are targeting 960,000 already registered voters who deeply care about climate and the environment, yet they are unlikely to vote this fall. And we know that by looking at their previous voting histories. So, 960,000 people, and not to get creepy here, but we, we literally know them all by name and street address. We've identified them on the voter file, and we're contacting them in five different ways. We have volunteers who are going door to door to talk to them. We also have volunteers who are texting them and calling them. And then we as an organization are sending them direct mail and digital advertisements. And as a reminder, all of our messaging, whether you're a canvasser or a texter or a digital advertisement, it's almost politically agnostic We're not talking about climate change. We're not talking about the environment. We know that our audience already deeply cares about these issues. We're just using those behavioral psychology techniques to turn them from bad voters into good voters.
1: And you mentioned something uh, creepy. You know, you admit that some of this data work is creepy. What's something creepy that you could mine data and find out about any of our listeners?
4: Well, you know, we adhere to the best sort of ethical standards, and we only use publicly available data. So all of the data that's available is something that people freely give up. And then beyond that,
1: Does I, that include something like Facebook, like tracking on Facebook? Because yeah, yeah, if, people, you could say they freely give up information on Facebook, although they may not really know what they're giving up.
4: Right, right, no. And people often, you know, will... Uh, you know, buy a T-shirt online and not read the, you know, five-page disclaimer that says, yes, The Gap can sell my name to 10 other people. So yes, I I understand that just because someone signs away their information doesn't mean that they want to. Uh, But we're using the same data that the major political parties use, Democrats, Republicans, all major political organizations. Uh, They use it. To identify people who are likely to support a candidate. We use it to identify people who are likely to deeply care about climate change in the environment. Furthermore, there are security walls in place such that I, as the executive director of the Environmental Voter Project, can't even access this data. It's all anonymized, and we only use it to build these predictive models. So our data scientists at the end can say, hey, we used a lot of these data points to help build this model, but I can't actually access any of it. So not only is it publicly available data, but I still don't even have access to it. That being said, it is still a very powerful tool, and it does allow us and other political campaigns to now target people on an individual basis. Gone are the days when campaigns target by demographic group. No one looks for soccer moms or NASCAR dads anymore. Every campaign knows which individuals on the voter file they want to target, and that's how they do it. And we are not going to apologize one minute for using cutting edge techniques to try to solve the climate crisis. We need to find these people and make sure that they vote. So we embrace this technology.
1: Nathaniel Stinnett, thank you so much for your time coming to Climate One.
4: Well, thank you so much for having me, Greg.
0: You're listening to a special election episode of Climate One. Coming up, Greg Dalton talks to the Director of Sustainability at Lyft. Find out how the ride hailing company is getting its employees and customers to the polls.
2: You know, our goal is to improve people's lives with the world's best transportation, and that means connecting people and communities to do the things that communities do, and one of the most important things that a community does is to vote. That's up next when Climate One continues.
0: You're listening to Climate One's midterm election special. Give your hands out your pockets. After 10 years at Google, where he developed the company's sustainability efforts as Senior Lead for Energy and Infrastructure, Sam Ahrens now works as Director of Sustainability at Lyft. The ride-hailing company is part of a coalition of companies that are actively encouraging their employees to vote. Lyft is also helping their customers get to the polls by offering free rides on Election Day as part of the Drive the Vote program. Greg Dalton asked Ahrens how that effort aligns with Lyft's other sustainability initiatives.
1: Sam Ahrens, thanks for coming to Climate One. Thanks for having me. So why is Lyft getting involved in Drive the Vote this election season?
2: Well, Lyft has always been a company that has focused on its values, and we've been a mission-driven and value-driven company from day one. And, you know, our goal is to improve people's lives with the world's best transportation, and that means connecting people and communities to do the things that communities do. And one of the most important things that a community does is to vote.
1: There's other companies that jumped into this too, uh, Levi's, Walmart a little bit, Patagonia, which closed all their stores in the 2016 election. So, how did these particular companies come together? Was it in a bar one night? How did it happen?
2: Uh, that's a great question. Um, I can't say that I was yeah there at the time when everyone got together at the bar or whatever <laughs> it was, but um, you know, I think that we're a, a group of companies that believe strongly. That um, exercising, you know, our civic duty as citizens, as corporate citizens, and helping citizens of our democracy do that is fundamentally important. Uh, so we came together to uh, help our communities in, in the ways that we can uh, exercise that right.
1: And I read research on your page showing that among youth. Nineteen percent with college experience cited transportation as an obstacle to getting to the polling place, and 35 percent of people, youth without college experience, cited transportation as a problem. Those numbers were kind of high for me, thinking that a lot of people vote by mail these days, but it sounds like transportation is a pretty significant obstacle to getting to vote.
2: It is, yeah. Um, and, you know, I think across, you know, all populations, transportation is a barrier to voting. Um, you know, vote by mail is not available in every jurisdiction. So we want to make sure that we're helping folks to overcome those barriers uh, and, and get out there and uh, exercise their duty and their right.
1: So how are you going to help on election day? How are you going to find out who needs a ride uh, to the polls? Are you going to target uh, urban, rural, you know, inner city? How, how's this going to work?
2: So we're actually um, offering this service to people across the country, regardless of where you live, what your political views might be. You know, this is really about helping everyone participate in our democracy. Um, And so what we're going to do, what we are doing actually consists of three parts. Um, The first is registering to vote, right? You can't vote if you don't register. Mm -hmm. The next part is um, making sure that you know what your plan is for voting. So just being aware of what the different ballot initiatives are and making a plan for the day of voting. And, you know, studies show that uh, folks who have taken the time to make a plan to figure out when you're voting, to know where your polling place is, who you're going to vote with. Is it before work? Is it after work? Mm -hmm. Um, If you have a plan, you're much more likely to actually follow through and vote. And then finally, on the day of the election itself, Getting yourself to the polls, of course, is the third and final step to voting as well. So we are actually addressing all three of those things by helping to inform uh, folks through our app and through our partners uh, of voter registration deadlines. We're also working with our partner uh, organizations to now help people make a voting plan. And then on the day of the election itself, we're offering discounted rides across the country to folks who may need that to help them uh, get to the polls.
1: Companies like Lyft know a lot about their customers. Did you use any data to try to target people who you think are likely voters or maybe unlikely voters to try to get them in?
2: So that we left to our partners, and I've I've mentioned that a few times. Let me actually say who who they are. Um, We're working with BuzzFeed, um, who actually provides the website where people can go look up their polling locations, uh, and then vote.org, nonprofit vote, TurboVote and Voto Latino and uh, various uh, local Urban League affiliates, as well as the National Federation of the Blind. These are all organizations. This is really a cross-functional effort here with, with all these different folks. And they're the ones who are the experts who know you know, which are the populations that have transportation barriers and and they're going to help get the word out to those specific populations.
1: And is it 16 million voters that are potentially, you know, people who could be helped by transportation help? That's one number I thought, I'm not sure it's on your website. That's quite a significant number.
2: That's right. Yeah. Yeah. 15 or 16 million uh, folks who are already registered voters, but who have cited transportation barriers as a reason why they are not able to vote or haven't been able to vote in the past.
1: And how many people do you think you can reach this year? And is this going to be something that's continued in 2020, or is this a kind of a midterm one-off?
2: Well, we'll see. Um, actually, this isn't the first time we've done this. So back in 2016, uh, we offered uh, rides to the polls, discounted rides to the polls in a handful of cities across the U.S. And so I think this year, uh, this is sort of a, a logical next step to expand that, you know, as Lyft's, um Uh, service offering has expanded across the country since that time, right? We're now available to 95% of the U.S. population. Um, It just makes sense now to uh, be increasing the reach um, of this program as well.
1: And the profile of Lyft riders, I have an image of them as perhaps being younger tech savvy. Is that true?
2: Um, you know, Lyft is, uh, again, provides transportation to everybody. We want to be, uh, you know, the world's best transportation service out there. And that means we, we want to be the service for everybody. So um, we're offering this to, you know, everybody, regardless of uh, age, regardless of race, regardless of gender. Right. This is to help every every citizen exercise there. Right? right,
1: but you you need a smartphone and you're likely, I mean, what is it, 20% of Americans, something like that, use the service. So it doesn't are you saying that the the Lyft users don't skew young and kind of tech savvy?
2: Well, we actually have a service called Concierge, which is a way that people who may not actually have smartphones can still use Lyft. And it's a way that uh a ride can be ordered on their behalf, basically, to come pick someone up, you know, wherever they might be. Um, and we've partnered with folks like United Way with their 211 program um, to offer uh, relief rides. This is a whole, whole different program we can actually help to bring in populations that may not otherwise kind of be at the, at the cutting edge of the Internet uh, world.
1: Let's talk about sustainability, which is really the core of what you do. It's the core of, of Climate One. Lyft has its climate goals, 100% renewable energy. How committed are you to Lyft cars being electric versus gasoline? How are you going to reach that 100% renewable?
2: Well, um, you know, one of the main reasons that Lyft was founded in the first place was to address the environmental impacts of our current system of transportation. Um, the idea is if we can better utilize the car assets that we have out on the roads today, and get more people into shared rides, we can actually reduce emissions in that way. Um, so just in some ways, just by lift existing, you know, there are some potential environmental benefits to that. Of course, as your listeners are very well aware, climate change is a very serious and very urgent problem, uh, and we can't wait for some sort of perfect future where every car just you know becomes an electric vehicle. So what we did is back in April of 2018. Uh, we announced that from that point forward, all Lyft rides are going to be carbon neutral. And this is not just a commitment to make the rides carbon neutral at some unspecified time. This is actually saying, no, the rides are already carbon neutral as of that date.
1: So you're buying offsets, planting trees somewhere, funding projects somewhere to offset the carbon emitted by the, the Lyft cars driving around.
2: That's exactly right. Now, we acknowledge, of course, that you know buying carbon offsets is a great first step. It's not the ultimate goal. Right. Ultimately, we have to actually eliminate those emissions in the first place rather than uh, having emissions and having then to offset them. So the long-term goal, of course, is one of electrification, as you mentioned. My vision um, is that we will have ultimately one day every car will be electric and it will be charging from renewable energy. Of course, there are many barriers to electrification of transportation, and we are now laying the groundwork to address those barriers, uh, but it probably will be a multi-year project.
1: One of Lyft's sustainability goals is to cut CO2 emissions for the U.S. by 5 million tons per year by 2025. How are you going to achieve that?
2: Well, I think that that will kind of go along with our ultimate electrification goals. Uh, so that we announced that goal back uh, in mid-2017. Um, and that was before we uh, started doing our carbon offset program and our renewable energy purchasing. So as our goals continue to evolve, I think that's going to get rolled into them, right? So if we are successful ultimately in electrifying, you know, one day all vehicles driving for a lift, achieving that goal of a certain number of tons of CO2 being reduced will go along with that electrification.
1: There's been a couple of reports saying that ride-hailing uh, services actually increase con- congestion. The one at UC Davis looked at Boston, Chicago, uh, Los Angeles, New York, and San Francisco, They found that it reduces the miles that users drive themselves, but it increases the total miles driven in cities. And one even more recent from the county of San Francisco said that ride-hailing services reduced speed by 26 percent from 2010 to 2016 and increased total miles by 630,000. So Uber and Lyft are causing congestion in American cities.
2: So I think when we think about the congestion topic, which is a very important topic, right? I mean, because, you know, part of the promise of improving transportation is, is reducing congestion. And so we owe that to uh, our partners in cities and our customers um, to, to help with that problem. We wanna be part of that solution. Um, now, if we take a step back and think about, you know, what causes congestion broadly, where does congestion come from? Uh, there are a lot of things that cause congestion. Um, the biggest thing that causes congestion is people driving to work alone in their own car. Um, so then we have to think about what causes that. Well, that has to do with land use policy, largely, right? So we're, we're in a situation where um, we have built our cities at such low density that people have to live, you know, let's say an hour away from work, um, and then they have no choice but to commute into the city center for their job. So because we don't have high-density housing and a very efficient rapid transit systems that are, you know, connected to that high-density housing, um, we've forced people to live so far away at such low density that they are driving and causing the majority of this congestion. Um, so, you know, I think we obviously need to think about how does ride-hailing fit into this, um, and we see that ride-hailing is part of, of the ecosystem of transportation, but we need to think about the fundamental issues as well and try to think about whether we can change land use policy, for example, to help improve this problem.
1: And there's been efforts to do that in California, other states, to uh, facilitate uh, development around uh, transit, that sort of thing, to make it faster, easier to build housing near transit so people can hop on a rail rather than a drive. Um, but this is quite a, a stunning report from, from San Francisco saying that, you know, half of the basically half of the speed reduction and half of the increase in congestion is by the what 30 or 1000 or so cars uh, who come often from 60 80 100 miles away into San Francisco any given day to circle around and we all know that that's to get those response times in that what 1 to 3 minute window that people want including myself <laughs> when i hop in a lift land use is a, is an important tool it's a slow moving tool Right, it takes a long time to get at land use. There's a lot of NIMBYism, and although there's YIMBYism, yes, in my backyard, spurring as a political force in California and elsewhere. um, What's the near-term solution to the congestion that that the ride-hailing services, with good intentions, are contributing to?
2: Well, I think the good news is that there's a number of things that we're doing to address this already. So, to give you a few examples, um, we uh, have transit partnerships with over 25 transit agencies across the country. And what that means is uh, that we are helping those transit agencies supplement the service that they offer so we're not trying to replace folks who are riding on a bus line let's say but if they live out in some outer part of town where the bus doesn't go or doesn't go very frequently um, then we're helping to provide a link from where they live or where they work to the transit system itself and so in that way we actually see in many cases an increased usage of transit by lift customers Um, rather than a decrease.
1: And one year, although there's some studies that say that uh, Lyft and other rides uh, displace walking, uh, transit, or maybe make it easier to take a trip that uh, you've taken the friction out, which is great, but that's also a problem to take the friction out of hopping in a car.
2: Right, and so to address that, we have these transit partnerships. We also now have transit integrated directly into the app. So that way, um, when you open the app, it shows you what transit is nearby. So you can say, well, wait a minute, I can take a lift ride, you know, and it'll get me there at this certain time. Or, hey, actually, there's a bus coming right down the street. It might get me there, you know, in about the same time, and it might be a dollar cheaper. So, hey, why don't I choose that? Um, we also have, of course, our bikes and scooters program that's now launching. Um, and we want to help people get out of cars and get onto other modes of transportation, like bikes, like scooters, like transit, to avoid um, contributing to that congestion uh, as well.
1: And one question there, I think, is is does Lyft make? um, What are the profit margins compared on a scooter ride versus a um, versus a car ride? You may not know that particular number, but for me, as a knowing how businesses work, um, they're going to go where the profit margins are, right? So whether if that if the scooter ride makes Lyft less money, it might be it's not going to get as much emphasis as as the higher margin service, which is what Lyft's investors want it to do.
2: Well, remember, this is a whole new industry, and it's a very competitive industry. You know, we're not the only transportation company out there, and and there are many scooter companies that are just getting started right now. So
1: they're like mushrooms all over, sprouting all over. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly.
2: So you know, in some ways, we have to sort of think about it as bikes and scooters, you know, are coming, and they're going to change the way that we get around our cities for the better. I would argue, um, and we want to be part of that because it will disrupt us. You know, if we don't do it, so we need to disrupt ourselves first, and we need to do it ourselves too.
1: Great. Well, Sam Aarons, thanks for coming on Climate One.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: You've been listening to a special midterm election episode of Climate One. Greg Dalton has been talking to Sam Aarons, Director of Sustainability at Lyft. We heard earlier from Nathaniel Stinnett, founder of the Environmental Voter Project, and New York Times political reporter Trip Gabriel. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. If you like the program, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And join us next time for another conversation about
1: energy, economy, and the environment. Climate One is a project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner and Justin Norton. Annie Chelsea, Devin Strolovich, and Claire Schoen edit the show. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club's CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.